Well, the title uh, of this session is Preach, The Preaching of the Reformation. And I want to begin by just saying that it would be virtually impossible for us to overstate the importance of the Reformation. Let's just start at that point. Uh, Philip Schaff, writing in his eight-volume set on uh, the history of the Christian church, says that the Reformation of the 16th century was, quote, the turning point of modern history, close quote. And Schaff goes on to say, the Reformation of the 16th century is next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. It gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement and made Protestantism the chief uh, propelling force in the history of modern civilization, close quote. So it would be virtually impossible to overstate the strategic history-altering importance of the Reformation. At the same time, it would be virtually impossible for us to overstate the importance of preaching to the Reformation. It is critical that we understand the inseparable connection between the Reformation and preaching, and preaching and the Reformation. I really had no idea. I took many church history classes uh, when I was in seminary, loved them, had a great influence on my life, and I agreed to write a book on John Calvin, the expository genius of John Calvin. I, I knew of John Calvin, the commentator. I knew of John Calvin, the theologian. I knew of John Calvin, the controversialist. I had no idea of John Calvin, the expositor. I think the case can be made that he is the greatest expositor in the history of the church. And so the place of the reformers in the Reformation was largely determined by the place of their pulpit. It was was an era of a new generation of preachers that, that burst onto the scene. I mean, they were many things. They were skilled theologians. They were gifted teachers. They were brilliant professors. They were prolific authors. They were exegetical geniuses. They were leading churchmen. But first and foremost, they were preachers of the Bible. There was virtually no such thing as a reformer who was not standing in a pulpit and heralding the Word of God. Edwin Dargan, who was professor of homiletics at Southern Seminary in the 19th and 20th century, writes, the great events and achievements of that mighty revolution, referring to the Reformation, was largely the work of preachers and preaching. For it was by the Word of God, through the ministry of earnest men, that the best and most enduring work of the Reformation was done. The relation between the Reformation and preaching is one of mutual dependence. The Reformation was dependent upon preaching, and preaching was dependent upon what was taking place in the Reformation. John Broadus, you may recognize that name, the distinguished professor of homiletics in the 19th century at at Southern Seminary, gave a series of lectures known as Lectures on the History of Preaching. Uh, it's, It's a wonderful book. And when you come to the Reformation, he identifies four distinctive marks of the preaching of the Reformation. And I want to use that as our four headings as we think through the Reformation and preaching. So this is what John Broadus outlined as these distinguishing marks. Number one, it was a revival of preaching. In other words, it was a revival of just preaching, period. Previous to the Reformation, there was virtually no preaching. The Roman Catholic Church was a monolithic church that dominated the landscape of Europe and England and 
And in the Catholic Church, preaching had been displaced. And in fact, the the pulpit, if there even was a pulpit, was moved over to the side and there was an altar in the middle and mass was observed. And that was thought to be the, the, the principal means by which grace would come to the people by their coming to mass. And the sermons which were preached over in the corner were like little 10-minute homilies, and they were filled with Aesop's fables and, and wives' tales and religious superstitions. And so the point is that there was virtually no preaching before the Reformation, and the worship services were, were very complex. There, there, there were all kinds of uh, moving parts to a supposedly Catholic worship service. But Broadus notes that with the Reformation, a great outburst of preaching such as had not been seen since the first century. That's quite a statement. Dargan asserts, among the Reformers, preaching comes to its proper place. The exposition of Scripture becomes the main thing. Preaching becomes more prominent in worship than it had been since the fourth century. And Harold Grimm, who is a Reformation historian, writes, the Protestant Reformation would not have been possible without the sermon. At this time, most people could hardly read, if they could read at all. So just think about that. Selah, pause and meditate. the, The average man who was a farmer or a blacksmith could not read. And what was in print was in Latin, which was the language of the classroom. And it was only the elite that could send their children to a a classroom where they could learn Latin. And the worship services were in Latin. And what was in print was largely in Latin. And so therefore, the sermon became the principal means by which the message was being spread. Harold Grimm writes, the Protestant Reformation would not have been possible without the sermon. The role of the sermon in making the Reformation a a mass movement can hardly be overestimated. And so there were two powerful voices who stood in pulpits and towered over their times. They were not the only voices. But they were the two chief voices, and it was Martin Luther of Wittenberg, Germany, and John Calvin of Geneva, Switzerland. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of Luther, let's begin with Luther. Lloyd-Jones said he was, quote, preeminently a preacher, close quote. Virtually all of the Reformers were preachers. Luther was one of its leading heralds. He was a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. Luther preached twice every Sunday, and he preached multiple times throughout the week. Wherever he traveled, it was expected that Luther would preach. He would never be in a town, but that Luther was standing in a pulpit. And in 1521, April the 18th, when Luther stood at the Diet of Worms and gave that great Stand here, I stand, I can do no other, God help me. I I, I have literally stood on that very little piece of of ground, and to prepare for speaking there, I I did research on Luther's travel from Wittenberg to Worms, Germany. It's one of the greatest preaching tours of anyone since the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. And Luther literally preached his way through Germany to get to, to Worms. Uh, he, he was a preaching machine. In 1528, during the Black Plague, when others were fleeing from the cities, Luther chose to stay. He preached some 200 times that year, an average uh, of four times a week in the middle of the Black Plague. In the next year, 1529, 
He, he preached 18 times within 11 days. Luther said, quote, often I preach four sermons on one day, close quote. I mean, there, there are a lot of men who can't produce one sermon a month. And these reformers are, are preaching multiple times throughout the week, if not throughout the day. They, they, were, they, were, they were preachers. Luther, it is estimated, oh, well, not estimated, we know, he preached some 6,000 sermons. 2,300 of which have survived. And Luther said, the church is not meant to be a pen house, P-E-N. It is meant to be a mouth house. In other words, the church is not to become a book club where we gather together and, and read books. We, we, the church is to be the place where you hear the voice of the preacher. Bring the word of God. Luther also went on to say, the gospel is not meant to be written, it's meant to be screamed. Luther brought preaching back to the church. And then there was John Calvin, prolific preacher, preeminent expositor, indefatigable energy. Luther, excuse me, Calvin preached twice on Sunday and every day of the week, every other week. So from Sunday to Sunday, Luther, uh, Calvin preached nine times. And during the week, he preached at 6 a.m. in the morning to a standing room only, St. Paris Cathedral. And during the winter, when it was cold, they moved it from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. for the comfort of the people. <laughs> and Marian exiles are pouring out of England. French Huguenots are escaping uh, the Royal Guard in France, and they're, and they're pouring into Geneva. And they, as they come, they are sitting under the preaching of John Calvin and the French Huguenots thought that they had died and gone to heaven as they are under the preaching of the Word of God. Emile Duberguet, can you ask them to stop that, whatever that is? They can get it next week. A little faster. <laughs> Emile Duberguet was the foremost biography of John Calvin in the early 20th century. And on the 400-year anniversary of Calvin's birth, and by the way, I have preached in Calvin's pulpit on exactly the 500-year anniversary of Calvin's birth. On the 400-year anniversary of Calvin's birth, Duberguet said this about Calvin. This is the Calvin who seems to me to be the real and authentic Calvin. The Calvin who explains all other Calvins. Calvin the preacher. Molding by his words the spirit of the Reformed of the 16th century. While Calvin has come to be remembered as a theologian who recovered the doctrinal landmarks which had been buried under the debris of confused centuries or... Calvin has been remembered as a powerful controversialist whose name opponents have sought to fasten upon beliefs which they judged odious. The truth is that Calvin saw himself first and foremost as a pastor of the church of Christ and therefore as one whose chief duty must be to preach the word. Close quote. As I studied the preaching of Calvin's expositions, I had no idea what a prolific expositor he was. J.H. Merrill Dubonnet, uh, another Reformed historian, has stated that the real Calvin was the biblical expositor who considered the pulpit to be, quote, the heart 
of his ministry. Close quote. So for Calvin, the pulpit was what the Puritans would later refer to as the primary means of grace. Many other means of grace, small group Bible study, public worship, prayer, Lord's Supper, but they're on the lower tier. At the highest point is the preaching of the Word of God. And just a footnote, the Puritans said if you had only one hour to give to God for the advancement of your spiritual growth, which would bring you the most profit? One hour spent alone with God with an open Bible or one hour sitting under the Spirit-filled preaching of the Word of God by a man who is gifted by God to preach and who has invested some 20 hours in the preparation of this message and will open up the text and draw out the theology of the text and then bring home application with exhortation, which one of those two would most profit your soul? And to a man, the Puritans would have said, the primary means of grace is the preaching of the Word of God. So this is the first distinguishing mark of the Reformation and preaching. It was a revival of preaching, period. I mean, it, it filled up a vacuum that had been empty for centuries. And I would have to say that we find ourselves in somewhat of a similar situation. Because today, we have too little preaching. We've canceled midweek services with preaching. We've canceled Sunday night services with preaching. We've canceled Bible conferences with preaching. We have shortened Sunday morning services and shortened Sunday morning sermons. We have such little preaching in churches today. It should not be any wonder to us why the church is so weak today and why The average preacher, it barely rises to the level of mediocrity. If you were trying to learn how to play the violin, do you think more practice or less practice would help you? Most preachers don't even preach enough to become good because they preach so little. And so in some ways, we find ourselves back at the end of the dark ages in that there is so little preaching today. The average church person barely sits under enough direct, straightforward Bible preaching to have much effect upon their spiritual life. We need preaching. In fact, when I first went into the ministry, people used to call me as the pastor. They used to call me the preacher. They used to call me preacher. And I have noticed over the last several years, no one's called preacher anymore because no one preaches enough to be called preacher. You're just something else. Second, not only a revival of preaching, but second, a revival of biblical preaching. It was a revival of a certain kind of preaching. It's not just that it's more preaching that we need. It's more preaching of a certain kind that we need. We have enough hot air in churches as it is. We need expository preaching. We need biblical preaching. We need true preaching. And that's exactly what they had in spades in the the Reformation. Uh, Philip Schaff, again, writing in his history of the Christian church, this is a stunning couple of sentences I'm going to read you. It about knocked me out of my chair when I first read this. It's at the introduction of Volume 7, the German Reformation. Listen to these couple of sentences. Every true progress in church history. Now, just marinate on that. Every true progress in church history is conditioned by a new and deeper study of the Scriptures. 
while the humanists, referring to those in the Renaissance, while the humanists went back to the ancient classics and revived the spirit of Greek and Roman paganism, the reformers went back to the sacred scriptures in the original languages and revived the spirit of apostolic Christianity. They were fired, referring to the reformers, they were fired by an enthusiasm for the gospel such as had never been known since the days of Paul, close quote. In 1516, Erasmus, having gone, traveled throughout Europe, as you recall, gathered together and collated what had never existed before, a Greek New Testament. And it has been said that, that Erasmus, in gathering a Greek, uh, a Greek text, really laid the egg that the Reformers would hatch. Luther translated the New Testament into German in 1522. It's known as the September Bible, September of 1522. William Tyndale translated the New Testament into English, 1526, did all the historical books, and one prophet. Interestingly enough, he chose Jonah because he wanted every preacher in England to stand in their pulpit and to preach, 40 days and London will be destroyed. Forty days and Liverpool will be destroyed. And then uh, Coverdale and then uh, John Rogers came in and translated the rest of the Old Testament. But for the first time now, there is even a, a Greek text, not having to use the Latin uh, uh, Vulgate to be able to study the Bible, verb tenses, word studies, grammar, syntax... And suddenly it was a new day. Calvin's cousin translated the Bible into French. And in just one year of the Reformation, there were more Bibles produced in one year than the previous 15 centuries. It was the greatest back-to-the-Bible movement in the history of the world. And it was being launched by Bible preachers. Broadus writes, instead of long and fabulous stories about saints and martyrs and accounts of supposed miracles, instead of passages from Aristotle and, and Seneca and fine-spun subtleties of the, the schoolmen, these men, referring to the Reformers, preached the Bible. The question was no longer what the Pope said or even what the Fathers said, However highly esteemed they, the fathers may have been, the whole crux of the matter was, what does the Bible say? It, it was sola scriptura. And the reformers were, the, were the, per, the poster men for sola scriptura. When you walked into their church, you knew what you were going to hear. It was going to be straightforward Bible preaching. We read... Um, Broadus says, in the 16th century, the preacher's one great task was to set forth the doctrinal and moral teachings of the Word of God. Dargan writes, the Catholic service had made the sermon but a small affair. The celebration of the Mass had become the center of worship. Little stress was placed upon the reading and exposition of, of the divine Word, but in the Reformed worship services. The mass was abolished because it was abominable. And the exposition of Scripture became the main thing. They read the Word. They sang the Word. They prayed the Word. They preached the Word. It was all about the Word of God. And so... Dargan says the reformers gave the scripture a better interpretation than had been pre had previous be previously been given before. The petty allegorizing, which marred even the best medieval preaching, finds little or no place in the sermon of the reformers. 
It is refreshing indeed to pass from the wild and baseless spiritualizing of the medieval preachers. You know, they had four levels of interpretation. It gave way to the sober, clear, grammatical, and instructive expositions of Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and the others. The Scriptures held the position of honor and power. Tales of the saints and other stories were banished. The petty fables and impossible adventures which had formed so large an element of the medieval Catholic preaching do not appear in any of the sermons of the Protestant reformers. And leading this charge was Martin Luther. He was professor of Bible at Wittenberg for over 30 years. He had a doctorate in, 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 in the Bible. He was a strong Bible preacher whose preaching literally shook Saxony, Germany. They were straightforward expositions. And Fred Musser, who is an authority on the preaching of Luther, writes, listen to this sentence, with Luther came what many called a totally new form of the sermon, colon, the expository sermon. Luther virtually invented or at least resurrected what had either been dead or buried for centuries. He took a text of Scripture and preached it and worked his way through books in the Bible. At the same time, Zwingli was doing the same with the Gospel of Matthew in Zurich. And so a whole new kind of preaching emerged. Musa writes, Luther's method is to take a, a given segment of Scripture, find the key thought within it, we would call it the big idea or the dominant theme, and make that unmistakably clear. You see, the Reformers believed in the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, that the Scripture is absolutely crystal clear. It's not a book of mystery. It's the total opposite. It is a revelation. It is the unveiling of what had been hidden. And to preach the, the Bible, which is lucid and clear, the perspicuity of Scripture, you must now preach in a very clear fashion so that you're easily understood by anyone who walks into this building. He said of Luther's preaching, Luther, uh, Musa writes, the text is to control the sermon. Hughes Oliphant Old, who was probably the leading authority on the history of preaching until a few years ago when he passed away, writes, Luther is always an expository preacher. For Luther, the most important reform needed to be in the worship of the church and to establish the centrality of the preaching of the Word of God. Luther literally revolutionized a worship service. It went from like 16 moving parts, stand up, sit down, cross yourself, light a candle, do incense, on and on and on and on and on. The reformed worship service became so simple so that the Word of God would have the central place. And nothing is competing for the place of primacy. Luther was always a sequential expositor, sequential, consecutive exposition through books in the Bible, which came to be known as uh, Lectio Continua, the continuous reading of Scripture. A couple of years ago, the men in the men's discipleship group that I was teaching in a former church took up a collection unknown to me, and they bought me the complete works of Martin Luther. It's like 56 volumes, something like that. It's an extraordinary set. And so when I wrote my book on the preaching of Martin Luther, I decided I would just go through those 55 volumes and see how much of this how, much of the, how many of these volumes are sermons? And also, what did he preach? 
So he preached consecutively through the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi, Habakkuk, Zechariah. He's just a verse-by-verse expositor. And then in the New Testament, what I was able to find, that he preached through Matthew 5 through 7, that Sermon on the Mount, 11 through 15, chapters 11 through 15, 18 to 24, and 20, chapters 27 to 28, that's what we have. He may have done the entire uh, Gospel of Matthew, we just lost certain chapters. The entire Gospel of Mark, Luke 15 to 16, Gospel of John, Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 1 John, 1 Peter, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. I mean, these men were preaching machines that they saw this as their primary calling. A non-preaching reformer was an oxymoron. And it's all undergirded by Luther's commitment to what he believed the Bible is. He said, we make a great difference between God's Word and the Word of man. A man's Word is just a little sound that flies into the air and vanishes. But the Word of God is greater than heaven and earth. Yes, greater than death and hell. For it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. He said, any teaching that does not square with Scripture is to be rejected. He said, a good preacher invests everything in the Word. He literally saw the pulpit as the throne for the Word of God. That God would rule and reign His church with an open Bible in the pulpit and the preaching of the Word of God. He said, the preaching of the Word of God is the only perpetual and infallible mark of the church. So Luther went so far as to say, you want to find a real church? You want to find a true church? You'll find an open Bible. And if you don't see an open Bible in that pulpit... It's not a real church. You know, as the Reformation, just a footnote, as the Reformation was unfolding, it, it took three generations for there to, it had to go from Luther to Calvin to Knox. I mean, there's a threefold generation there for the Reformation. It didn't happen in a weekend. And in this process, with all of the Catholic cathedrals and churches dominating the landscape of cities. The question was, where do you find a real church? It's pretty relevant today. People move to your town. Where where are they going to find a real church? And the Reformers said there were three identifying marks of a real church. Anything less is not a real church. The third was the practice of church discipline. The second was the practice of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But number one on the list was expository preaching. It was the preaching of the Word of God. That's how you know that's a real church. It's not just the facade, not just a sign out in front of the building. And so Luther is defining what a real church is because you find real preaching there. I love this quote. Luther said, every time the church gathers, the word needs to be preached or Christians should not even come together. So he he said, there is no basis for any church to have any activity for anything if the preaching of the word of God is not central. 
And that would shut down most of our programs in a heartbeat. Luther was unwavering with this. He said, I take pains to treat a text and to stick to it. And so instruct the people that they can say after the sermon, this is what the sermon was about. Luther said, in my sermons, I bury myself to take just one passage and stay there. I love this quote. You see, Luther, as as this reformation is unfolding, there are many preachers who are not yet prepared to be expositors. They they can't come to the University of Wittenberg. They're still in their churches. And what are they going to do? And and so Luther actually wrote what's called postils, P-O-S-T-I-L-S, which were the sermons for the other preachers because they weren't yet up to speed with the Bible and not yet up to speed with theology and exposition of Scripture. And so Luther is literally carrying the nation on his back by writing the sermons for the other preachers. And so Luther says to the other preachers, give me Scripture, 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 do you hear me, Scripture? I like that. I like that. You probably don't have too much Bible in your sermon. You may well need more sermon, more scripture. You listen to Dr. MacArthur tonight when he preaches at 7 o'clock. He's going to preach what he preached Sunday morning. I took six pages of copious notes. It it, it is like a, a tsunami of scripture just washing over your soul. Luther said, it is disgraceful for the lawyer to desert his brief, referring to his case. It is even more disgraceful for the preacher to desert his text. Don't ever leave your text. He said, the highest worship of God is the preaching of the word. He said, we can spare everything except the word. So that's Martin Luther. I, I would love to go today, tomorrow, the next day on just Luther's preaching the Bible. John Calvin. He was a biblical expositor of the highest order. He systematically preached through entire books in the Bible. He would start in chapter 1, verse 1, and preach verse by verse through the entirety of that book, and not just small books, long books. After Calvin was run out of Geneva, he only lasted two years. We'll talk about this in a little bit. He only lasted two years. They ran him out of town. They didn't have a stomach for expository preaching. He goes to Strasbourg, where he connects with Booser, and he preaches through the gospel of John and Romans. Geneva finally wakes up, and they send message to Calvin. They realize what they had just lost. You got to come back to Geneva. Calvin said no. He said, I'd rather die a thousand deaths than to go back to Geneva. Martin Busser, who was like a spiritual father to him, said, you have to go back. So Calvin created his own logo. Luther had his own logo, the Luther Rose. Calvin's was a hand extended as though it's offering something up to God. And in the palm of the hand is a heart, not a brain that we would think of with Calvin who had more of that than virtually anybody. But it was a heart being offered to God that he would serve God sincerely and promptly. So he went back to Geneva, 1541. He had left in 1538. So there's three and a half years since he's been gone. 
Luther comes, Calvin comes back and begins his exposition at exactly the next verse. (laughs) As if he had never been gone. And it was a statement. I mean, he was drawing a line in the sand and making a statement that this church will be governed by the Word of God. And so I'm going to read you his expository sermons. He he prioritized the New Testament, which he preached on Sunday, but he preached Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the Old Testament. And so, though wanting to prioritize the New Testament, there are more days of the week than there are Sundays in a week. So he ends up preaching major portions of the Old Testament. But listen, I'm going to read this list. He died preaching a harmony of the Gospels after 65 sermons. He preached through the book of Acts 189 consecutive sermons. 1 Corinthians 110 consecutive expositions. 2 Corinthians 66. Galatians 43 sermons. Ephesians 48. 1 and 2 Thessalonians 46 sermons, 1 Timothy, 55, 2 Timothy, 31, Titus, 17, Old Testament, Genesis, 123 sermons, Deuteronomy, 201, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. 200 consecutive expositions through Deuteronomy. Judges, a short series, we don't have the number. 1 Samuel, 107. 2 Samuel, 87. 1 Kings, we don't have the number. And there was a paper shortage in Geneva at the beginning of the 19th century. They went into the library and they took Calvin's sermons, who was so disregarded at this point, and sold the paper, the rag content paper, to the merchants who turned it over and wrote out their bill of sales on the back of Calvin's sermons. I mean, we lost the crown jewels, so many of them, though we have many as well. Job, 159 consecutive sermons. Are you believing this? Individual sermons, we only have 72, but we know he did more than 72. It's just we only have 72. Psalm 119, 22 sermons. Isaiah, are you ready for this? Are you sitting down? (laughs) 353 consecutive verse-by-verse expositions through Isaiah. Don't tell me you cannot preach verse-by-verse through these larger books. Jeremiah, 91 sermons. Lamentations, 25. Ezekiel, 175 sermons. Daniel, 47. Hosea, 65. Joel, 17. Amos, 43. Obadiah, 5. Jonah, 6. Micah, 28. Nahum, we don't have the number. Zephaniah, 17. I mean, these reformers were just heaven-bent on preaching the Bible. That's why they had a Reformation. John Calvin said, the minister's whole task is limited to the ministry of God's Word. In other words, you have absolutely nothing to say to us apart from the Word of God. Calvin said, when we enter the pulpit, it is not so we may bring our own dreams and fancies with us. As soon as men depart, even the smallest degree from God's Word, they cannot preach anything but falsehoods, vanities, errors, and deceits. Calvin said, a rule is prescribed to all God's servants that they bring not their own inventions, but simply deliver us from hand to hand what they have received from God. I mean, Calvin echoed what Augustine said. And when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And Calvin believed in the literal presence of God in the preaching of the Word of God. He's known for the literal presence in the Lord's Supper, which was kind of like a halfway house between Luther and Zwingli. But it wasn't just the Lord's Supper he believed in a real presence. 
It was in the preaching of the Word of God. Calvin believed that when the Bible is preached, God comes to church. And God is walking up and down the aisles of the church. And God is tapping people on their shoulder. And God is speaking into their life as the Word of God is being rightly handled. He went on to say, we owe to the Scriptures the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from God alone. And it wasn't just Luther and Calvin, as I said earlier, Zwingli was preaching verse by book, verse by verse through books in the Bible. The English reformers were doing the same. William Tyndale translated the Bible into the English language. And Thomas Cranmer in, in 1534, Tyndale translated the New Testament in 1526. He, he finished a, a, a second edition in 1533 and then a third in 1534. And the Old Testament historical and Jonah by 1534, that's when he was arrested. And in 1536, he is martyred the very same year Calvin goes to Geneva. One man down, the next reformer up. But Thomas Cramer following after Tyndale's English translation of the Bible writes out now rules for all preachers in England. In fact, do you know uh, the large Bible? They literally chained a Bible to every pulpit in England. Can you believe that? By order of King Henry VIII of all people. <laughs> Should chain one to him. <laughs> Every pulpit in every church in England by royal decree from the king of England had a pulpit, had a Bible bolted to the pulpit. And the people, whenever they wanted to come to church, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they could come to the pulpit, they can read the Word of God. And whenever the preacher uh, stands in the pulpit to preach, that, that, that book is to be opened. And it went so far, even in Scotland, where, where John Knox would, would take the Reformation to, to Scotland after having sat at the feet of Calvin in, in, in Geneva, they took it so serious that to begin the worship service, they, they, they actually had a Bible put on a, like a purple cushion, and a man called a beetle would lead a solemn procession down the center aisle carrying the Bible to the pulpit. And the preacher would come walking in behind him. And the beetle would then walk up the spiral stairs up into an elevated pulpit with a sounding board over it. He would walk up, open the door, because it would be like a circular uh, contained pulpit. He would open the door and would point to the pulpit, and the preacher would walk up, and the beetle would put the Bible in the pulpit, and then shut the door. And it was symbolic that he was set apart from the world. He had nothing to say from the world. And he was set apart to God, to preach the Word of God. I mean, that's what was going on. Can you imagine if that was done today? I don't think we need more preachers. I think we need fewer preachers. It's become amateur hour in pulpits. And a bunch of churches that have divided, they need to get back together. We have too many churches. We have more churches than we have real preachers is the problem. So... That's the second mark of the Reformation. <laughs> now, I'm preaching at 4 o'clock, okay? So, <laughs> I'm going to get us out. I'm going to get us out in time. Okay, I've got two more to give you, okay? Man, this is so good stuff. I, I can't believe I'm having to skip over this. All right, number three. It was a revival of controversial preaching. Because when you begin to preach the Bible, you begin to shake things up. And after a thousand years 
of the darkness of Rome, hovering the land, and now the striking of a match and lighting a candle in the darkness, and it's like going down into the basement of a, of a dark basement and turning on the lights, and every rat in that basement begins to scurry. John Broadus writes, religious controversy is inevitable. Where definite truth is dwelling side by side with error and evil. And so because the Reformers preached verse by verse through books in the Bible, they couldn't skip anything. Every hard saying was expounded. Every doctrine was taught. Every sin was exposed. Every critical issue was confronted. Sacred cows were butchered. No truth was withheld. Not only did they believe in sola scriptura, they believed in tota scriptura, all the Bible. There was no safe preaching in the Reformation. They preached the full counsel of God. And it hit the European continent like a Category 5 hurricane. And in England, it shook the monarchy. Luther was a most provocative preacher. The Reformers couldn't even understand having a nice little ministry. Luther was, according to Broadus, an intense personality in the pulpit. He says his words were half battles. Luther said, Wycliffe and Huss assailed the immoral conduct of the papists, but I chiefly opposed and resisted their doctrine. I said they preach not the truth. To this I am called. I take the goose by the neck and set the knife to its throat. When I can show that the Pope's doctrine is false, I can show that his manner of life is evil. The Pope has taken away the pure word and doctrine and brought in another word and another doctrine. I shook all popedom. We must stress the doctrine onward, and that breaks the neck of the Pope. It's like a Sunday morning sermon. <laughs> Luther said a soldier must be both soldier and shepherd. He must nourish and defend and teach. And he must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and to fight. Lucia said, the Pope and his proud prelates do not believe. We must not hold our peace with Rome, but must confess the truth and say that the papacy is accursed, the emperor is accursed, and according to Paul, whatever is without the promise is accursed. From the year of 1518 to the present time, every Monday, Thursday at Rome, I have been by the Pope excommunicated and cast into hell, and yet I live. For every year on Monday, Thursday, all heretics are excommunicated at Rome, among whom I am always put first and chief. This is my badge and honor, and we must expect it and have it in this world. I mean, these were courageous preachers. They, they, they were assailing a thousand years of, of error and standing publicly in their pulpits and, and heralding this message with loud voice, not holding back anything. Listen to Luther. Where the battle rages the most, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield except that one little point, he's not worthy. So you just can't pick and choose. And where the truth is most under attack, there you must stand. I really don't have time to walk you through Calvin. You can imagine how controversial Calvin was. <laughs> I mean, he only lasted two years. 
in Geneva. He went there in 1536. He's run out of town in 1538. He was given an apple and a road map, and, and they ran him out of town because he's preached the Bible and he fenced off the Lord's Supper and said, you cannot come to the Lord's Supper and, and, and confess Christ if you live like the devil. And so he goes to Strasbourg, I've already told you, for three and a half years. He comes back 1541, and there he lasts until 1564. And the time that he is there in Geneva, let me tell you, no wonder he said, I don't want to go back to Geneva. He did battle with the Libertines. He did battle with the Anabaptists. He did battle with the Catholics. He did battle with the Unitarians. He did battle with Michael Saravitas. It was... It was anything but a sweet pastorate. And I love the account when the Libertines, that means they, they, they believed in all their liberty in Christ. Without They were antinomians to the, to the hilt. And Calvin said, you will not take the Lord's Supper. You're living with one another's wives. And they said, we will take the Lord's Supper. And Calvin said, you will not. So that Sunday, he's standing in the pulpit. If you've ever been to St. Paris Cathedral, it's very, it's an elevated pulpit. It's, it's a spiral staircase that wraps around a massive center stone post that holds up the building, and the pulpit is attached to that. The elements are down there on the floor. And in the middle of the worship service, as it's time to take the Lord's Supper, the back doors of the church swing open. And, and these doors are massive doors. And the Libertines come strutting into church. And they come walking down the center aisle. And in front of the whole congregation, we will be served the Lord's Supper. Calvin, this little Frenchman, a wee Frenchman, <laughs> quote Sinclair, Little, little, little Calvin, he throws that door open. He comes down that spiral staircase. He comes around and stands in front of the Lord's table. And it's a standoff. And they demand the Lord's Supper. And Calvin said, these hands will never give what is holy to those who are unholy and bared his chest. They had swords drawn. He, he, he bared his chest and backed them down in front of the whole church. Now, I've had some high drama congregational meetings. <laughs> but this takes the cake. And they turned around and walked back out. And that's the kind of stand you're going to have to take. I mean, you can't trip over your skirt trying to get to the pulpit. (laughs) You're just going to have to man up. Well, I don't even have to. I'm going to give you the fourth and last one, and I'm sure they're probably having something in here the next time. It can't be as good as this, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm the truth teller. I, I have to tell you that. All right, here's the last point. You just got to get this last point. It was a revival of the doctrines of grace. They preached sovereign grace. They preached electing grace. They preached redeeming grace. They preached regenerating grace, sanctifying grace, preserving grace. It was an awakening of the doctrines of grace. If you don't understand what the doctrines of grace are, it's the five points of Calvinism. John Broadus said the doctrine of divine sovereignty and human salvation was freely proclaimed by all the reformers. Now listen to this sentence. Protestantism was born of the doctrines of grace. And in the proclamation of these truths, the Reformation preaching found its truest and highest power.
The power of the gospel will still reside in the great truth of salvation by sovereign grace, he said. Broadus said it would be easier to remove Mont Blanc with snowballs than to remove Calvinism from the Bible. These men were Augustinian to the nth degree in their theology proper, in their Christology, in their pneumatology, in their soteriology. They believed in the fall and ruin of the entire human race in Adam. They believed in the bondage of the will in sin. They believed in the freedom of the will of God in sovereign election. They believed in the definiteness of the atonement of Christ. They believed in the irresistible drawing of the elect by the Spirit. And they believed in the eternal preservation of the elect to glory. And they laid hold of what John Wycliffe and John Huss had, had discovered, that the true church is comprised of the elect only. Where Rome said, if you're in the church, you're saved, or at least headed in that direction, because nobody in Rome knows if they're saved. And there's a reason for that, because no one is. And so Luther and Calvin and these reformers, they understood the true church is comprised of the total number of God's elect only. I'll just have to read you this one last thing. I've got to... I've got to stop. Erasmus of Rotterdam was the leading humanist of the day. He didn't like Luther's teaching of sovereign grace. So Erasmus, who was no small figure, he's the one who's compiled the New Testament in Greek wrote a book, The Freedom of the Will. It was a public attack on Luther. Luther did not initially respond. And everyone assumed Erasmus has won the day without Luther even firing a shot until Luther responds with the bondage of the will. It's worth the price of the book just for the introduction. It's an incredible book. It's so easy to read. It is Luther at his best. And Luther said, Oh, Erasmus, I wanted to respond earlier. And everyone has assumed you've won the fight. But I kept waiting for something better from you. <laughs> I was waiting for something better. And he said, with your brilliant intellect, and he was the leading humanist of the day, the leading Renaissance man, what you have written in the freedom of the will with your brilliant language is like serving dung on a silver platter. And then Luther said this. This... I highly laud and praise you that in contradiction to all the others, you alone have attacked the real matter and issue. That is the heart of the case. And you've not wearied me with these irrelevant points about popery and purgatory and indulgences and similar trivialities. Rather, you have attacked the real issue, the real cause. All others have hounded me in vain. You alone have seen the heart of the matter, and for this I congratulate you. I heartily thank you because the issue is between the freedom of the human will, or will it be the freedom of the divine will? Who has free will? Is man dependent upon God, or is God dependent upon man? Whose will is supreme? I wish that the expression free will had never been invented. 
It is not recorded in Scripture anywhere. Free will is not free at all, but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil. The human doctrine of free will and our spiritual powers is futile. The matter does not depend on our will, but on God's will and sovereign election. It just goes on and on and on. I wish we had time to walk through the bondage of the will. I, I preached on the bondage of the will one, I'm just remembering this, one Wednesday night at Grace Community like 20 years ago. And there was a master's seminary student was converted. And just me ch- channeling Luther's arguments in the bondage of the will. He was so shaken that he was brought to repentance and faith in Christ. You ought to read Bondage of the Will. It'll it'll put some spiritual hair on your chest. (laughs) Might even put it on some of your heads. (laughs) Hey, hey, come on now, hey. (laughs) All right, all right, all right, all right. All right, I'm going to end with this quote. We want, this is by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We want again Luther's, Calvin's, Bunyan's, Whitfield's, men fit to mark eras, whose names breathe terror in the foeman's ears. We have dire need of such men. Whence will they come to us? They are the gifts of Jesus Christ to the church and will come in due time. He has power to give us back a golden age of preachers. And when the good old truth is once more preached by men, his lips are touched as with a, a live coal from the hot altar. This shall be the instrument in the hand of the Spirit for bringing about a great and thorough revival of religion in the land. I do not look for any other means for converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. The moment the church of God shall despise the, ch- the pulpit, God will despise her. It has been through the ministry of preaching that the Lord has always been pleased to revive and bless His churches. And I set before you example A, the Reformation and the preaching of the Reformation. And if we're going to have another Reformation, it's not going to be a pretty boy little movement. It's going to have to be some men who are ready to have their nose bloodied and stand in pulpits and preach the word of God, knowing that the forces of hell will rise up against it. We need churches where the Bible is literally chained to the pulpit again. And somebody walks down that center aisle with a Bible and points to the pulpit and tells the preacher to get there and closes the door behind him and say, Sir, we want to hear the word of God. Well, I need to bring this to a close, so let me just close in a word of prayer. I'm not finished, but, I, but I'm closing. <laughs> Father in heaven, use what has been said in this hour in some way to stir our souls, to ignite our spirit, to set us on a course like these reformers of old, to be men of the book, to preach the whole Bible with all of its truths. And we will leave the results to you. Do something yet again in this day like you did 500 years ago and shake this world. In the name of Christ, amen.